0: I'm Scott Tetro. There is so much political news to follow these days. But you don't have to keep up with all of it. You just have to keep up with us on the NPR Politics Podcast. You can find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey y'all, it's been a minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Every week we try to bring you a meaty, in-depth conversation with one person or on one topic. This week, our person is Jennifer Palmieri, Communications Director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. She was also President Obama's Communications Director, and she worked in the Bill Clinton White House back in the 90s. She has been in the politics business for decades. She has a new book out called Dear Madam President, an open letter to the women who will run the world. It is full of advice for women in politics and women in the workplace, but the book is also this really in-depth look back on the Hillary Clinton campaign from the inside. Jen perhaps knows Hillary more than just about any of us do. And she has some really, really interesting takes on what went wrong and what went right for Hillary in 2016. In this conversation, we get to a lot. We talk about how Jen herself survived the craziness of 2016. We talk about how she dealt with illness in her family while also helping to run a presidential campaign. And we talk about why Jen has an entire chapter in her book all about why she thinks that men and women and everybody should cry at work. All right, here's my conversation with Jennifer Palmieri. Enjoy. So I was thinking this morning about you because I couldn't sleep last night for whatever for. Lots of reasons. And I was grumpy and like, oh, I had a night of not great sleep. And then I said to myself, well, my guest today probably had like two years of not sleeping. Like being <laughs> on the grind and working on a campaign for president. Yeah. What did you average a night in terms of hours of sleep?
1: Um, I'd say I like four and then probably, you know, actual sleeping was less. What do you but mean? But I got to... You know, four of a time where you should be actively sleeping, but you really can't. It's hard to settle the mind. Yeah, you can't let go. But five hours was good. Five hours was a good night. You know, because I joined the campaign from the Obama White House. I had been communications director there. Mm -hmm. And I literally stopped on a Friday and started on a Monday. And people wow. said, well, that's crazy. You need a break. And I was like, no, you know what I'm in? I'm in fighting shape. Like, I was... <laughs> so my body, you know, it's like what Bruce Springsteen says about like being a concert performer at 60, whatever. It's like it's not for everybody, but my body was conditioned for to that, that to live that life. But it was not until the campaign till like the year following the campaign that I realized just how stressful that experience of the 2016 campaign had. Oh been. Yeah. yeah, I
0: mean, you write in the book that you ended up in the hospital because <laughs> of dehydration and exhaustion. I always say to myself, like, it's you're so exhausted you forget to drink water. That's you, intense.
1: Yes, and I and I drink and I normally drink a lot of water. You just I really didn't think that I was that sick. Just like let me just stop yeah. by this little sick bay that we had at uh, haven't have in our office building, and see and. You know, yeah, and then I pass out on my way. Oh, my goodness. My way and ended up, yeah, you know, it's a pretty sobering thing to end up in an ambulance in New York City and thinking, well, maybe all of this that we're encountering isn't as uh, manageable as I thought. There's a crazy story that's not in the book about Tell that. Me. Can you share it? <laughs> yes. Okay. So I was feeling sick, decided to stop by the, you know, like urgent care place. And what kind of building. sick is it?
0: Like lightheaded, shaky, what is it?
1: Coughing um, and, uh, you know, like a bad bad sore throat and coughing, but it seemed manageable. And so I said, well, yeah, I had plans to, it was a Saturday, work and then to meet some colleagues for dinner. And just walking to the clinic, I just like had to stop for breaks. And I thought, oh my God, I wonder if I have pneumonia because I could only imagine that that's what it was. And then walking down the hallway after they called my name to go actually into the doctor's office, I... Fainted, And I came to, they put me on a, you know, they like stretcher. put me in a stretcher and put me into a room. And there was a doctor standing over me who was Russian. Okay. <laughs> a Russian doctor was standing over 2016. me. 2016. And it was a moment where I did think, and I was in an ambulance where you thought, why did I think all of this was manageable? Why did I think I, any of us on the campaign, could silo off all of the hard things that we were facing. You what know, were you yeah. siloing off? Well, there was, you know, at that point, there was Russia. I mean, we were, that was August. So it was June where we learned that it was, in fact, the Russians that had hacked John Podesta's um, emails. And, you know, we had this extraordinarily unconventional candidate that we were dealing with in Donald Trump, who was, you know, breaking the rules and doing incredible things. It every had day this to strength that
0: was underestimated. I, I think yeah. no one really knew how well he was going to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. It is the the one time I thought that we were going to lose was actually in early September and of 2016 we had had a bad August Mm. as described (laughs) Um, for me um, and then Hillary came down with pneumonia herself Trump had just kind of hit his stride Bannon had been named CEO who's been more disciplined And this is before the debate started. And I thought, why do we think that we are going to be the ones that can stop this guy? You know, he just like rolled over.
0: 16, 17 candidates. Yeah, yeah, candidates on the
1: Republican side. And that, you know, it seemed to me we're going to look back on 2016 and say the only possible outcome was Trump wins.
0: Yeah, And what I found so interesting in the book is you write several times that Hillary and even Bill had a certain premonition about the possibility of a Trump win that the staffers did not. Yeah. She had a certain level of foresight that some of y'all didn't. Right. Um, How do you feel about that in hindsight?
1: Um, I saw her recently. I talked to her about it because she, I think for two reasons. One, the Clintons have, you know, been... Uh, You know they're older and they've observed American politics like no other two people in the country. They've lived it. And, you know, as I wrote, I wrote in the book in September of 2015, early on, they were very disheartened, really concerned about just this sort of state of dismay they saw in America. They'd never seen it before. And I thought that was misplaced because I thought perhaps since they hadn't been part of the 2010 election Mm -hmm. or 12, the way I had been involved, where I saw a lot of voter dissatisfaction, I thought things were improving. But they just saw this unease that they had not seen in, in the electorate. When and they would
0: tell you that, would you say whatever?
1: No, I said, I mean, you got to take those two seriously, right? Yeah. And and also for Bill Clinton to not feel optimistic about something is A an unusual going on, deal. Yeah. So I took it seriously, but I hoped the first time they expressed this concern in the fall of 2015 that they just hadn't been out in the campaign trail enough. Um, but then by the time... We, you know, we had another serious conversation about that in February of 2016 after Hillary mm-hmm. lost the New Hampshire primary very badly. I like realized they were right. But the other thing that Hillary knew was she'd been Hillary Clinton her whole life, right? So yeah. she knew she anticipated a lot of what how yeah. how the public would likely to react to her. You
0: write really poignantly about the moment she sat some of y'all down yeah. and spent an hour basically saying Here's what we should expect to go through cuz I've been going through it for so long. Yeah. Did you think that was overkill when she was doing that?
1: No, it was really it was a remarkable moment cuz she basically this is my first official day in of the campaign so it's March of 2015 and she just sort of vomited up like what it had been like
0: <sighs> to be her. To be
1: Hillary Clinton for the last 25 years. And she was able to do it from a distance to say just kind of go through from being You know, even further back from being the governor's wife, who was Hillary Rodham, not Hillary Rodham Clinton, and her decision to change her name, um, and just how sort of politics and the press and the public had reacted to her over the years. And she was just as mystified by it all. But it's like, here's what it's been. She was realistic about it. Yeah. And she said, I'm sort of at a loss for Hmm. how to make it better. Huh. She said, I'm very open to whatever suggestions you have. You should never censor yourself. You should always tell me exactly what it is you think I need to do. And I'm very open to new ideas and doing things differently. Uh But just know this is the experience. And, like, maybe hearing it will help you figure it out because I can't.
0: Yeah. You know, there's a moment towards the end where you write about – the emails bubbled to the surface again when, about a week or two before Election Day, James Comey reopened the investigation. And Hillary was saying to you guys, I think maybe we should talk about this more and handle this more. And some staffers, including yeah. yourself, I yeah. think, said, Nah, chill, leave that alone. Do you regret that?
1: Yes. Yes, I do. Because I think Did that that... Did that lose the election
0: for I mean, there's a min, a million reasons it's, it's, why.
1: It, you know, when you lose three states by 70,000 votes, any one factor yes. can be the, deciding, yes. could be the deciding factor. And I don't know if her talking about it more could have overcomes people's concern and could have over... But I think it would have been, in retrospect, it would have been a better uh, move for us, you know, It was hard in the moment to believe, like, how could it possibly be true that having Hillary Clinton proactively talk about emails 10 days before the election was the right thing to do? It seemed insane, right? You're like, she needs to be talking about the economy. She needs to be talking about jobs. And And you
0: also wrote that if it weren't the emails, it'd be something else. It was. You seemed to express this belief that the emails were really about some other underlying issues of doubt and and mistrust of who Hillary Clinton is as yeah. a woman.
1: Yeah, I think that it is I did not believe this going into the campaign, but what I felt coming out, having experienced it, is um, our biggest problem um, for women trying to lead in politics is there's not a model that people are used to seeing that they can compare that woman to and be comfortable with her in that role. Our only model that we have for anyone who runs the America, uh, who is the head of the United States, is a man. So... I had a moment where I realized in October during the campaign I thought wow what we have done is made Hillary a female facsimile of the qualities that we look for in a male president mm. and I just like it was a gut punch because I thought that's you know that yeah. there was like a fundamental it was like realizing there was a fundamental flaw in the design well and, and, and in the, October and you can't yeah. you can't go back and fix it and I think that people's distrust of her isn't that everybody's sexist or misogynist. It's like the, she vexes people and they don't know what to make of her.
0: Is that because she wasn't showing her full self? Is that what you're saying?
1: I'm saying that's because I think they don't know what a woman in charge Looks like, and right. so we were we were trying to present her with these qualities that you look for in a man, that you're used to seeing in a male president. That she's strong enough that she can handle national security. That she's tough enough that Donald Trump can come after her and try to humiliate her, and she's never going to let it show. And I think she had to do that. I do think that the first woman nominee had to prove that she could yeah. do the job the way a man would, but that robbed her of her a lot of her own authenticity. Yeah.
0: But I also, you know, when I read that, I kind of paused because I followed the campaign and covered it. And I don't think in any way – I mean, there were moments when she definitively and definitely campaigned as a woman. I remember the white pantsuit moment at the convention. I remember the press campaign where Hillary was like your abuela. I remember her talking about breaking the final glass ceiling. So it wasn't that she wasn't talking about being a woman. And also when I compared the way that she talked about being a woman – I felt she did that more than Barack Obama talked specifically about being black. It's true. So, what exactly was it? It, She was definitely a woman in the campaign,
1: right? (laughs) She was. uh, I think she she was a she was a woman in the campaign. But I think that when we set out to show qualities of hers that we've like marks, you got to hit right. It's about proving that she could do the job, which we did. Okay, we proved that she could do the job. Everybody, you know, big majority of Americans, Republicans and Democrats, thought that she could do the job. That was that's a big deal. And that's a big uh, accomplishment for a woman where people have questions is about, well, why does she want it? And that is the piece that I think all of us, Hillary, myself, voters just haven't Rustled to ground. You think with. a
0: lot of Americans aren't comfortable with it. Directly ambitious woman.
1: Yeah. And again, I, I think that this is just because this is part of the growing pains we're going through. Yeah. And I think that people who are practitioners who work on presidential campaigns or um, other campaigns uh, uh, like myself, like need to understand the questions voters have about women candidates are different than they have about male candidates. Um, you know, so with with Hillary, we really try to tell her biographical story from the perspective of what motivated her And that was really hard to do.
0: Well, and and you say that you, you know, had her talk about ambition in terms of a a desire to serve others, right? It was an ambition
1: for others and their health and well-being. Everything had to be presented as being in service to others. Do you think
0: that Hillary Clinton should have talked more about being a woman or talked less about it? It seems as if there's still...
1: So what I think is, I, I, I don't believe that we had, even with the, you know, haven't had a year to think about it, I do not believe there was any other path for the campaign or for her other than to undertake this the way that we did, which okay. was A, prove that she could do the job, and B, try to express her ambition and make people comfortable with it as best as we could. And I think that this was just the process the first woman had to go through.
0: Was she in some ways a martyr
1: for the cause? I don't, you know, For I, a cause. like. I don't like. I, I, I don't. It Makes me sort of ill to think of her as a martyr because that, you know, that suggests that she's a victim, and that suggests that she was defeated. Um, Eve, she didn't win, but I don't feel like she was defeated. Okay. But it is a big reason why I wanted to write the book was yeah. so that when we see when the next woman, when we see ourselves having the same kind of questions about like, well, I don't know, there's something about her I just don't like, like, uh, you know. You 180- had an acronym for that. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know you know who I, people say that about Kirsten Gillibrand now. People say that mm. about Emily Klobuchar, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, there's just something about her. It's like, you hear there's something about her that I just don't like, there should be, I want like really? big red flashing lights to go yeah. off in everybody's mind that like, maybe I gotta check that. Mm. And I think that like, where most people, most of us are all people of good will just trying to figure it out and it doesn't mean that everybody is sexist it just it took living through that campaign for me to understand how much women's growth in the workplace is modeled after men Mm -hmm. and the workplace Mm -hmm. and that probably is not just holding women back but that like holds everybody back because maybe some like some female some qualities that are more likely to be seen in a woman would help you in the workplace
0: All right, time for a quick break. When we come back, Jen tells me and you and everyone else why we should cry at work. Back in just a minute. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover. Discover. The traditional first anniversary gift is paper. Most couples aren't gifting each other stationary, but Discover is following this anniversary tradition for its new card members. At the end of your first year, Discover will match all the cash back you earned, dollar for dollar. No caps and no catch. That's a paper anniversary gift in the form of a cash back bonus. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Cash back match offer only for new card members. Limitations apply. Hello, just dropping in to remind you about On Point, the NPR show where we take you behind the headlines. On Point talks with newsmakers and real people about issues that matter most. Listen to On Point now on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's talk about the book for a bit. I realize we haven't really gotten to the book yet. Really? <laughs> Sorry, just okay, right I feel in. like we are. A little bit, yes. It is called Dear Madam President, and how would you describe it for folks who haven't read it yet?
1: uh that it is written as a letter of advice for uh, women in this time now which and and what do we do with this uh this moment where i think so women so many women feel empowered to create a new game for ourselves and play by a new set of rules i think you know, and even, it's written
0: in to this it is written
1: imagined to a, future female president. My, yes, uh, imagined uh, female president. My, sh- my friend Nicole Wallace has written three novels about the first woman president, and now I have a book. So we have, between us, we have four books about a f- you yeah. know imaginary female president. I
0: want you to describe what that imaginary female president looks like, feels like, sounds like in your mind's eye.
1: It sa- uh, I see her as somebody. Not that far in the future, you know, okay. I don't um I you know, I start the book by saying, "I don't know who you are or where you are at this very moment. You know, are you a student? Are you, you know, registering people to vote? Are you in, on Capitol Hill or in a state house? So I write it as a letter of advice for saying, like, this is what we lived through in sixteen. And uh, I don't want that to have gone to waste. I think there's valuable lessons to pick over there. And also just a new way that women can be, um, in the workplace, and weather, difficult, trying, personal times, too. When Donald Trump won, I think a lot of women, that, for a lot of women, that moment should have crushed your soul, right? You know, you, you could look at the, the results and say, okay, maybe we're not supposed to be in charge, or maybe women have plateaued, or maybe this is as far as we're supposed to get, or maybe the guys are always going to win, or the nasty guys always going to win. But that's not the takeaway that women had, Instead, they felt empowered. And I think that's because you realize, oh, wait, (laughs) all those doubts I've had in my mind about this doesn't seem quite right, how this is going in my job and how I'm being treated. Like those doubts if you had, you were right to have those doubts. It means that the game, as we've been playing it, is obsolete and we're going to play a new game.
0: You lay out in the book some new rules for the new game. And one of the ones that I found the most interesting was your chapter all about... Being cool with crying at work. Yeah. <laughs> what did you call the chapter?
1: <laughs> I t- called the chapter Not Less, Cry More. Okay, explain and, that. And uh, the lesson, each chapter has a lesson from it. lesson from this one is uh, it's your party and you can cry if you want to. And I thought of it when I saw Lindsay Vaughn uh, crying when she got the bronze medal uh, in downhill skiing in the Olympics. Which people, a lot of people attacked her for. And, it's, and I think that crying is a way women and men uh, express frustration, anger, or passion. And we, we should not feel compelled to mute those uh, emotions. You know, These there's a lot of listeners emotions. hearing
0: you say that. Saying, "Do not cry at work. Do not." Right, it's, a, it's it like into- it's
1: like a mortal sin for women I mean, to cry at work. And I, I, I almost I, called the book "Crying at Work." Whoa! Why did you do that? Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> because people who do this for a living thought that, dear yeah. Madam President, was a better idea.
0: But when I got to that chapter, I was like, oh, I can't believe she's writing this because I. I'm a dude, but like as a person of color, I have been told all the time, "Don't show any weakness at work. Can't show any weakness Keep at work. It Probably don't yell. Don't, don't yell. Don't, don't look raise angry. Your voice.
1: You can't look angry." Yeah. Sure.
0: So when you wrote that, I was like, mm, "But this see, that's is-
1: that's what I I think. You know, I wrote in the book that I felt like Hillary was running for president with half of humanity tied behind her back. I think that he, you know, we're all men and women, both, but particularly women." A holding back on parts of ourselves because they don't fit into the traditional workplace model. And I just I think that, you know, for me anyway, and uh, I think for a lot of women, it was the election of Donald Trump that made me realize like, OK, this is not working right mm-hmm. we got to create a new path we have to like women have to do this embracing all of our own mm-hmm. qualities and emotions mm-hmm. and for me like i am a big crier <laughs> and do you I watch get... this is us i don't but
0: you're gonna love it if you're a crier anyways so, I, I, don't, I don't
1: necessarily love that i'm <laughs> okay, a crier and okay. our look i don't here's what i don't need sam more opportunities to cry <laughs> but i'm easily moved to yes. tears even just talking to you right now um when I'm talking about things I really care about. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as I wrote in the book when I went to this post-election forum at Harvard uh, shortly after the campaign ended... And I had a little contretemps with uh, Kellyanne Conway. And I just want to
0: slide by really quick and tell folks what it was. Uh, This is is a tradition after every presidential election. The campaign high-level staffers go to Harvard for a little conference. And for one of the sessions, you guys are on opposite sides of a big conference table. And you talk things out. And if you're okay with it, we actually have some audio of that moment. (laughs) You and Kellyanne Conway. Okay, we
1: can see about my voice. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. So you
0: and Kellyanne Conway kind of get... Get into it. Minute, yes.
1: David, when I am more proud of Hillary Clinton's all right speech than any other moment on the campaign because wow. she had the courage really to awesome. stand up I would rather lose than win the way you guys did. Yes. No, you wouldn't. Absolutely. Yes. No, you wouldn't.
0: Yes. And it just like, before you know it, it's gotten even more heated and there are other things being thrown about.
1: Do you think I ran a campaign where white supremacists had a platform? Are you going to look me in the face and tell me that? It did. Kellyanne did. Oh, it did. that's how run you lost? It did. Do you think you could have just had you a decent message that. for the white working class voters? Do you think this woman who has nothing in common with anybody... I'm not anybody, saying that's why you won, but that's the campaign that was run. We flipped over yes. 200 counties that President Obama one and
0: Donald Trump, just um, won. you think that, that was a space in which you cried, cool. yeah. Are you okay with that still? Yeah,
1: I am, and I, I thought I didn't realize in the moment. I mean, I in preparing for that, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to make sure that I had, you know, at one point, just like laid down a marker on. Uh, the Trump campaign and racism, because and you
0: went in there knowing that you wanted to. Call I wanted that out. to
1: do that at, at one point. I wanted to do that because it was very early on, and there was a sense after he won that well, maybe he'll govern the way conventionally the way pivot. the other presidents have, and he'll pivot and he'll try to bring everybody together. And I thought that that was unlikely to happen, and I didn't want us to, you know, whitewash, if you will how that campaign was run, because it was incredibly divisive. And it was the first time I ever saw a president, you know, somebody win the presidency with a strategy dependent on dividing the country to win, and that they specifically used race. And we couldn't let that go ignored. They had to, I, what I had hoped would be they would address that and then try to move on.
0: But then what happened is, well, one, you wrote that you didn't know it was recorded. It was.
1: <laughs> I didn't, audio I didn't got focus. Out. <laughs> I, don't, I was like, yeah. this is like three weeks after the election. No, I was, was a not lot focused. Going on. It was terrible.
0: But, you know, the coverage of that moment ended up being more about you maybe crying. Yelling, And yeah. the, you and yeah. Kellyanne yelling than about that argument that yeah, you had Yeah, but see, make. this is
1: my point, Sam. Like, I couldn't help it. Uh-huh. That couldn't be helped. Uh, like I could not help it. Yeah, those words were important to me, and they moved me to tears.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're almost moving. It's it's yeah, yeah it's moving to so, you. So
1: should I have not said? That's the point. It's like it's like then there's so many times that you hear people say that, right? Like, well, I was gonna say this, but I knew I couldn't get through it without crying. Mm-hmm. Well, like, well, like think of all the great things we didn't hear because of you that. Were afraid but to cry. I wish I hadn't cried. It was distracting that I did. But that was the only way I could say what had to be said. And then, you know, afterwards, I thought, like, oh, God. Like, Uh. (laughs) you know, I cried. I called my opponents racist. I, like, was an ungracious loser. Like, all the things you're not supposed to do. And then the next morning I woke up, I was like, I don't care. Like, this Uh. is not normal times. And Uh. we need to call these people out. But that is... You know, I don't think that it. um, I I think I put this in the book too, which is that I think that, you know, it's like you'll read some sort of equilibrium at work when it's as acceptable for a woman to cry as it is for a man to raise their voice, which is like (laughs) not great, right? But understanding that it's a way people blow off steam or express themselves. themselves. I mean, in the Clinton White House, people even designated my office the The crying office. The crying office.
0: How did making your office that kind of space, how did it change the work environment as opposed to places where... You couldn't right. cry.
1: I think that that is a, a one positive of uh, these high-pressure political jobs, whether they're in the White House or the presidential campaign trail, is because they are all consuming, that there is a, a very close-knit and supportive network around you of your fellow staff, and everybody has days. And I think this is true of the press that cover the you know campaigns, too. I certainly saw a lot of crying meltdowns. I had a cry
0: day. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> right, you know, from
1: men and women who yeah. covered the campaign both, too, because it's so intense. I don't think they any any political operation i was part of where uh you know having a good cry wasn't going to be an acceptable thing yeah yeah
0: you know you write in the book not just about the experience of working in this high pressure environment but also having to deal the entire time with some very serious family issues mm-hmm. um your sister was sick over the course of the entire campaign mm-hmm. um what was she dealing with and what so happened
1: So she had my sister had early onset Alzheimer's um very unusual uh situation big shock to our family because there had not been any history of it either. And she was diagnosed in 2013. Uh, She died um, at the age of 58. Mm -hmm. Um, So she had it for about three and a half years after she was diagnosed. Although they think that she probably had the disease for 10 years before it. But you you wouldn't think that somebody in their 40s would have it. it. So uh, you miss a lot. And she had been very Successful and, un, until that um, until that time,
0: and you were going back and forth to Dallas. Yes, yeah, so I would was. go to.
1: Uh, she lived in um, Dallas, and most of the burden of her care fell on my sister Beth, who was like her medical guardian and her close friend in, in, in Dallas. That uh, I mean, we had terrific care and a great support system. So, but I would go uh, to Dallas um, when she, Dana was still able to travel. We would take trips together with all of our sisters, but yeah. a visit there. Uh, during the campaign too and um was actually told the friday before the election my other sister had called me um and said that the doctor said that dana was going to die that weekend oh my and when did she pass ultimately february so Uh, it was but they of which year of of 17 Okay. last year so she so i landed in Cleveland for the Beyonce JC concert and I got a text from my sister Beth who was in Dallas and she's like I know this is really bad timing but we actually think she could pass this weekend and you need to call tonight to say goodbye Mm. So, which I did from Hillary's hold room. And
0: And she ended up living a bit longer, but you write in the book that you spent your actual birthday, November 15th, in a hospice room with her. There was going to be a surprise birthday party that your husband wanted to do for you, but I think you found out the surprise. It didn't happen. Yeah, But you end up in your sister's hospice room on your birthday, turning 50, right? Yeah. And you have this really interesting interlude about... Your sister and this these ideas you have about women's faces <laughs> and how women are judged, yeah, talk about that
1: yeah i um um you know it's my fiftieth birthday, that's a big deal for women in particular and um I relayed like I went through using music as a pathway, yeah. playing Dana. Um, All of the songs from when we were little kids to the present day that we love together. And that's like something that she could still sort of appreciate. And it's like a little time travel. Mm. Um, And part of what I want people to know who are facing things like this is that it's not all tragic. And that Mm. there are beautiful moments of joy and peace and liberation in these hospice rooms where you're just... You're with your sister, and it's just the two of you, and time sort of suspends, and I felt like it could be 2016, it could be 1976 when we were kids. You know, there's no expectations, there's no pressures, it's just like a lot of love in that room, and those were the best moments I had with my sister, and I knew that took a toll on my face, Uh. but I want those I want to explain what do you mean? Toll on your face. Um, I you know, I I, afterwards I took a photo of myself, um, that same day from the Dallas airport when I was leaving. And I looked at the photo and I was like, I see like wrinkles in between my eyebrows and around my eyes. And there was a name for one of
0: them, was it 11 something?
1: So, (laughs) yes, and I looked and I saw like, wow, there you can see and i have a smile on my face nevertheless yeah. and you can see in my face that i you know like there these experiences have left their mark but i think it's reassuring and i have always been reassured to see older women's faces cuz particularly if they're able to have a smile on it cuz it tells you i've lived through a lot mm-hmm. and i've made it Still and here. so will you i do re- i remember during the clinton white house president bill clinton i started getting these wrinkles between my eyebrows and those are the elevens. the elevens, yeah and i thought they were cool because it made it look like i lived through stressful times but (laughs) i would matured and i probably had grown some wisdom from that uh the way people talk about men's faces uh that are distinguished and you know gray beards that show the experience i don't see any beard i don't see any gray you're I thought it was cool. And then yeah. I went to some spawn. it said, you know, here's, you know, a shot of whatever to get rid of your 11s. And I thought... <laughs> Keeping the 11s. My wrinkles have a name and I'm supposed to get rid of them. Give me some 12s too. They're so cool. Yes, yeah. <laughs> lay it on. So.
0: What, what, um, what part of your sister are you most proud to still carry in those lines, in those wrinkles?
1: Well, just the courage that she approach the disease with. I mean, she insisted. She was very bossy, super bossy her whole life. And Mm -hmm. she insisted that all of our family was to see her diagnosis as a blessing because she had hoped that she would live for another 20 years and she ended up only living for, you know, just a handful. But, and that meant we're going to be, she was going to retire early. We're going to spend more time together. It was time we would never let us have. And she was going to have this freedom and she was just going to live life. And she had a uh, mantra, may I be happy and healthy, may I be strong and kind, may I know that all is well. Mm. And that is how she lived her life for the last. Um, few years. And so she she managed to find purpose as her world continued to get smaller and smaller for a while. She taught yoga uh, to small kids in her neighborhood. She did other charity work. She was a very supportive sister and mother. And then it got a little smaller. So Mm -hmm. all she had left was that mantra that, you know, I and my uh, sisters would say to her in her hospice room and her kids would, you know, all is well, all is well, all is well. And it was, and it's, you know, and that's something that I want people to know who are facing a a situation like this, that it strips away a lot of distractions and pressures, and it makes you appreciate what you have in your control uh, to accept and embrace about life and Mm -hmm. see that um, even in very difficult circumstances, all can be well. And that's what my face shows, and that's why I wanted to show, because I want people to know if you're facing a tough presidential campaign or or an illness like this in your family, uh, you can come out on the other end and you can still be able to smile.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you ever name Bernie Sanders in the book.
1: Oh, I don't (laughs) think so. I mean, maybe not. You mentioned the
0: Iowa caucuses, but never his name. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you feel about him and his supporters a year and a half out?
1: Um, I didn't. It was, you know, in the beginning, it was surprising to see Senator Sanders do so well. But, you know, at some point, relatively early on by the fall of 2015, you realize it made sense that after you have eight years of Democratic president, that your energy in the primary is going to be... It's going to be on the left, and that there are going to be people who are looking for something different. And, you know, Senator Sanders has for 40 years had the same message. And it is something that I think he really believes. And I think that it is something that struck a real chord with a lot of voters. And there's still an appetite within yeah. Democrat primary voters for that, and I think, you know, if he decided to run for president, that he would have a lot of support. Your support? No, but why not? Um, uh, why <laughs> why would I not support, uh, Senator? I'm not going to say who who I will support, okay. but, but we I can think assume that, that Hillary won't a, run again. Uh, she has said that she yeah. would not. So, so I don't think that, but I don't. But I think that you you know, um, in the end. Hillary Clinton won that Democratic primary by a pretty substantial margin. And I think that when we get to the time we have a Democratic primary in 2020 or 2019, um, I think I think both in the Democratic Party and in the country, people are going to be looking for someone who can unite the country. And I think that that is going to grow to be a, uh, a bigger yearning that mm-hmm. voters look for.
0: Could you see Hillary supporters, though, yourself included, ever supporting someone like Bernie Sanders if he became a nominee? I,
1: I mean, support, th- sure. I would support. Sure. If like Senator Sanders ended up to be the Democratic nominee, I would support him wholeheartedly and do whatever I could to uh, help him win. But I don't think when it's it's never two years out from. Are we two years out from the primaries? A little bit, a year and maybe, a half, yeah, a year and yeah, a, yeah. a half, not quite yeah, two. Yeah. All I know now is it's unlikely to play out the way we think it's going to play out. The way 2018 is going to play out, right? Yeah. So I just don't, I don't, you know, so I don't think that that's what's going to happen. I have, like I said, I have my view that I think the, our party, as well as the country, is going to want someone that's looking to unite, you know, like no matter whether you're going to vote for the Democrat or not. I think the Democratic nominee needs to be somebody who talks to the entire country, who has solutions for the entire country. And um, I think that's what people are going to yeah. want. But we'll see.
0: So the reason I bring this up is because I covered Bernie for a long time during the campaign. Yeah. And I'll still hear from Bernie supporters who I got to know over the course yeah. of the election and yeah. the campaign. Yeah. Uh-huh. The wounds are still very raw and there's still a lot of division between Democrats themselves. And you kind of hit it at the book. Like, there's a question about a book that looks back on the election. Right. Does it help unite divided Democrats or not?
1: I do not accept that my party is as divided as the Republican Party. They don't know if they want to deport 800,000 DREAMers or make them citizens, right? I mean, they have enormous divides in their their party, and I don't think that party is strong enough to have the kind of fights and policy debates that we have within our own party the democratic party is always going to be a diverse group of people who are yelling at each other <laughs> and fighting over what's the best way to do something and that's a part of room. what i love it's a big <laughs> <room>. <laughs> well said sam it is it is a big it's a big crying room but i think it in um you know, i I get so frustrated when people say, "Well, I don't you know, if we we need to be like the Republicans and they just they have one line and everybody repeats it, and like, my friends, my friends, we are never going to be like that. We are never going to be like the Republicans. We are never going to say the same things because we really, And I'm not saying that Republicans don't really care about uh, what they believe, but we really we're the ones that are always like wanting to push some new solution, a new proposal. And that means you're going to fight about it. We care about the details and we care about how we get there. We care about all of it. And it's messy.
0: Does that get you guys a chamber in the midterms?
1: Yeah, I think it gets us two chambers in the midterms.
0: You know, I'm going to come back and find you. We're going to talk about this. I'm
1: super bullish. I am unscientifically, uh, and some would say irrationally bullish on the Senate even. I believe Beto O'Rourke is going to win. He is going to beat Ted Cruz. That is the kind of candidate who is going to win in 2018. He is incredibly authentic. He's going town to town. He's not taking money from corporate interests. And I think he's going to sneak up on Ted Cruz. And, I mean, look at the... At the, I mean, Democrats need to do, you need to prove themselves once they're in power. But if you just look at all of the elections of Democrats picking up state Senate seats and uh, local races and um, that Democrats have never held or haven't held for 30 years, it's just, it's not like anything I have seen in my lifetime. And I lived through 94 and the Republicans taken over there and I lived through 2010 and I lived through 2014. And I've never seen a wave like this.
0: Part of the wave you speak of that might be coming is. A lot of women running for office in these midterms at rates that we have not seen before. Yeah. I know your book is advice for a future female president, but what about advice for a woman running for Congress in twenty eighteen Yeah, I mean, that, what do they, you have? They Give them one bit of advice. They
1: are that, understand. They are they were very much in my mind in writing and writing the book, and it is uh, be aware that there are different questions and different standards that people have for a women candidate than men and that doesn't you know that doesn't mean that everybody is sexist or out to get you and you have to keep a good attitude about it because they're just but you got to understand that the questions they have for you are different and be skeptical of the advice that you get from people like me <laughs> be skeptical of the uh-huh. advice that you get from political consultants who tell you that uh, huh. there's one way to do it because that model is out of date that model was is you know it's still inherently based on male candidates I don't want
0: you to talk yourself out of a job here uh, are this, you comfortable yeah, saying that a, yeah
1: you know I, I, yeah, right. no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and be yourself and and I think that this is a year without rules and you're gonna, they're gonna go there's gonna be a lot of women that, that win uh, playing by their own set of rules
0: last question will you ever work on a campaign again
1: um, I don't expect to. It's not a no. It's not a no I know, like <laughs> how can you say no to anything in this world? Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah, but right. yeah, I uh, I enjoy having um, the time to sleep uh, sleep, and really, uh, there's a lot to. There's a lot that's happening. I mean, I feel privileged to live in this. It's a very difficult time in American history, but I feel privileged to be here. And I'm inspired by a lot of what I see. And um, I try and take a lot of time to really think and understand and process. That, and I think that's, you know, doing what I'm supposed when I'm on this earth to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I thank you so much for this. I know that unpacking something as intense as the last election is difficult. And I appreciate you sharing with me and being so open to talk about all of the
1: things. Yeah. You know, some people say, like, oh, my God, when are we going to stop talking about this election? I don't. Yeah, it was kind of a big deal in America. I think there was a lot there to unpack. So I'm grateful to have the chance to talk with you.
0: All righty. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jen's new book is called Dear Madam President, an open letter to the women who will run the world. Jen, thank you so much for that conversation. All right, guys, we're back on Friday, back in your feeds with our weekly wrap and all the fun things that entails. Uh, Until then, email me whenever you want, about whatever you want, with dog photos too. samsanders at npr.org. Until then, until Friday, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.